greet you all in the name of Jesus this evening. The four walls are very comfortable, and so is this podium. And then I see friendly faces everywhere, and some that I've been familiar with. with various sessions here at Bible School. I have in my hand a Bible, which I believe to be the Word of God. And the question for us this evening is the background to our study is how are we privileged to have this? How are we privileged to have it in our hand? There's a larger question. How are we privileged to have it in our heart? It's the dead letter in our heart. John says in the first epistle that our hands are handled of the word of life. And I'm sure he's talking about his friendship with the Lord Jesus and the time they spent together. What we will be looking at in terms of formation inspiration in a general way is based upon some basic principles. First one is that the Bible is God's revelation to us, and that revelation is God's self-disclosure to us. It's not something that we find through science. Um, our desire to search for God even comes from Him our desperation or in a fallen world, a very troubling world. Then we go to a, another background question and that is, who is God and what are his attributes? What do we know about his word? And that the Bible tells us who things. And then along with that, we have experience as we relate to him, which builds upon what the word tells us. We believe that the word of God, as we have it, is complete and as it was given to us, it was well out error. Now, as Bibles are printed, as people interpret it, sometimes the words get mixed up, sometimes it's a deliberate introduction of heresy. So I cannot say, I don't want to shock you with this, that there's no error in this book. It might be a typographical error. It might be some other kind of error. But I don't believe there's any fundamental thing wrong with the word as we have it. We can trust it. Do be more about that in the hands of other speakers. One of the things that uh, results from our knowledge of God and our faith in Him is to know that our faith in God and in the Scripture, which means what is written, can be unshakable because God doesn't change it. He's true and righteous altogether. Where does that faith come from? It's not something that's self-generated. But we do have a choice of the will and how we exercise faith. Faith also is a gift from God. The word scripture as we have it, first of all, means the Old Testament. And we have the imperative that we're all familiar with. Search the scriptures for they are they which testify of me. And that's the words of the Lord Jesus. That means the Old Testament. What's the value of the Old Testament? Well, it tells us who God is, what his attributes are. So there might be an Old Testament story that we really don't like. I mean, how do we deal with David's psalm, for instance, where he's praying that foreign babies would have their heads bashed against stones? It doesn't seem very Christian. But what we have in that psalm is a 
faith that David has in the righteousness of God and his cause. And that's what we see in it. And we don't tear the whole thing apart here and there, destroying the major message. Well, anyway, more than that, or equal to it, is the fact that the scriptures testify of Christ. And the beginning of our knowledge of Christ comes from the revelation that's there in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures. Now, one of the things we face as we think about the formation of the Word is that we have it all written down. But it was given audibly before it was written down. And if not audibly through the Spirit to the mind of an inspired person, see God revealing himself to people. I can think of two places where things were written down, the commandments were written down, and they were immediately broken, pardon me for the pun, Moses destroyed his stones. <laughs> and in the New Testament, Jesus wrote on the, on the sand and in the dust, and of course that has a lasting value. When we come to the histories of, uh, of the Old Testament, history behind us in our faith, we will meet cynics who sometimes say, uh, how can you trust an oral tradition? Now, we're accustomed to having things written down, and we like things written down. We find with documents, legal documents, contracts, and all of that. But let me submit to you the same thing, that the spoken word across many centuries does not necessarily change very much at all. Even in pagan societies, you have the poets that repeat and repeat and repeat the poetry, and that's one of the reasons that poetry has a form, rhyme and rhythm and parallel structure in Hebrew and so on. And there, there isn't much change. If you would go to um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, which probably comes to us with only two or three original sources, and they're not even original, old sources, I should say, and if uh, secular scholars look at that, they don't see much change if that's been copied. So we have this question before us to think about the formation and inspiration of scripture, and that is, what gets lost when the spoken word is reduced to writing? And I'm not saying there is something lost, although the question might imply that. And then the next question is, what is gained when the word is put into writing? I leave those questions for you. I submit to you, too, that the spoken word of God is actually prophecy. And when a minister interprets the written word of God, he is prophesying in the present, not just futuristically. Prophesying in First Corinthians, in Corinthian letters, have to do with preaching, interpreting the Bible. <coughs> Truth comes to us audibly through our ears, visually through our eyes. I ask you again, does truth come to you in any other way? And we would say, by way of the Holy Spirit, and the quietness of knowing, and the desperation of putting things together in the last minute for a topic, whatever kind of <laughs> emergency situation in place, you are sincere, God will be there to help you. I really believe that. <laughs> I'm going to share a few definitions, not to insult your uh, intelligence, but because I need to review things. Two, I define interpretation as the process of orally explaining 
truth and preaching and teaching. Translation is the process of literary transmission from one language to another. And it is a six-syllable, but I don't know if I count the syllables exactly. Hermeneutics. You know that word? That's a fancy word for preaching. Hermeneutics is the art of interpreting the Bible as in preaching. Here is a takeaway that I want you to remember. Preaching that is prophesied is foretelling before it is foretelling. And there's immediacy to prophecy and preaching that none of you in the ministry should hesitate to face head on because God has inspired your word. Now here's another paradox. When we talk about inspiration of scripture, we are thinking of it as it comes into the form we have it, but the inspiration of scripture can also be understood in English grammar from how it affects you as you preach and speak and teach. And that also will be covered in later topics. I'm quite sure of that. Well, at least I think so from the descriptions that I The art of translation, and there will be a topic on translation coming up, especially English translation and some of what's behind it, always requires a finely tuned set of linguistic skills in two languages, at least two of them. Now, in translation, there are two approaches. There is formal translation, sometimes called literal translation, where you translate word for word, phrase by phrase. And there is dynamic equivalence translation, where the person um, paraphrases the text. There is no kind of translation that absolutely happens without involving a little bit of the other. It's important to know that a translator, they're not translate ideas. They can only translate words, and they split up a word that's in blocks of meaning. Otherwise, he's monkeying with the text. The job of interpreting a text is on your shoulders, not translators. Keep that in mind as you think about the problems associated with <coughs> translations and the multitude of translations that are before us. The scriptures are of no private interpretation as we have it in Second Peter, and I'm sure you'll hear that reference again. The words God's revelation for our inspiration and salvation is in the context of literature, history, culture, personal experience, and in the set of moral imperatives, commandments do this, do that, arising from conscience, from the gift of law and the gift of grace. And that's all grace, by the way. Even the law is a very gracious act of God upon us, although we don't really think of it that way. Unless we really think of it. I don't tend to dwell on the literary formation of Scripture because that's more uh, something for high school teachers to do in literature classes and Bible classes. But there are different kinds of literature in the Bible. So we know about history and poetry and prophecy. We know about parables about Proverbs, genre, G-E-N-I-D is the name for that, probably borrowed from the French. I leave you with that question too. A uh, question that does uh, arise out of this as we study the Bible as literature, the question arises, 
do we study the Bible and literature, or do we study the Bible as literature? And I suggest to you that if you approach a literary study of the Bible as literature, you're going to be applying critical uh, interpretation to the text that would, say, apply to studying uh, great expectations by Charles Dickens or a poem by Robert Frost or whatever else you study. We do not reduce the value to other literature by studying it as literature, but we may speak of the Bible and literature, and that comes alive to us when we think about the impact. I'm a King James fan because I'm like him. I grew up with it. If we were to lose that, we would lose a lot of connection to traditional literature, measure of measure, by Shakespeare, for instance, taken right from that. What measure would be measured to you again? It's limited. I mean, it's the grapes of wrath by Steinbeck, which I've never read, probably should have, I don't know. I, I read less and less in those areas because time is running out for me and the Bible is so rich. Confession there. I don't hesitate to read broadly, but read selectively, and you will be blessed. One of the most powerful things we see in the formation of Scripture is the narratives. Bible stories. Bible stories. Where we first learned the Bible, right? The narrative is a story with a purpose involved setting, characterization, conflict, resolution. Revelation is the story of salvation. Excuse me. Redemption is the story of salvation as we have it in the Old Testament, building up the fulfillment in the New. It was planned before the creation, it was promised after the fall, and there is a climax to this story, the denouement. What's the denouement? The climax of the Bible's story? Catch the question. The first of all, the cross. But in the flow of a narrative rises and falls. And we have the climax of the story going on in the life of the Apostle Paul, where he meets Christ and goes through his cross experience and sent every one of us who's been widely Christian experiences the cross or perhaps we're not Christian. With that we associate the resurrection. One of the things that happens in the structure of the Bible is we have the discourse, the dialogue between people. I think it's the powerful discourses in the Gospel of John where the context of the discourse is both literary and historical. Uh, and we hear people talking, Daniel in his prayer, for instance, Jesus and the Pharisees about his uh, legitimacy as a person. We hear the conversation, and as it unfolds, we pick up on the theme, and then we are moved by the Spirit of God to make application in our own lives. Back to the word interpretation. Interpretation connects what the Bible says to what the Bible means. Maybe that's a strange statement. I won't elaborate on it. How do we know what the Bible means? Big question. And that becomes the basis for a lot of arguments. Even among very steady fellowships, sometimes all at once something comes up. Does it mean this? Does it mean that? <laughs> Down through the years, a little bit of history here, the question arises as to how we use the Old Testament. And about uh, in the second century, 
and they were going to say, my by the name of Martian, and they asked Yahweh to look at the Old Testament, and he interpreted the Testament from a kind of literally interpreted, and he did well with that, except his method of interpreting it tended to develop a heresy called Gnosticism, where he denied the divinity of Christ. It didn't take long for the early church to pick up on that, maybe somewhat discarded as a heretic. Then we have Justin Martyr coming parallel with him, who promoted the messianic continuity between the two testaments. Jesus said, search the scriptures, but they testify of me. He's talking about Isaiah and the Psalms. He says that in Luke, right? The, near the end of the book of Luke, he talks about finding, says the disciples should know about him from the Psalms and the prophets. We have Irenaeus, who promoted the notion that the typology of the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament. Now, it isn't that these people were first came up with these ideas, but because they were leaders in the church, fathers in the early church, they would describe it. Uh, it got written down, and it comes to us through them. Through them. Then we have Clement of Alexandria and Oregon, who developed the notion for multiple levels of meaning in Scripture. And it's a nice idea, it's not taken too far. So we have the literal, we have the ethical, we have the moral, we have the spiritual interpretation of a text. And uh, then you can create confusion if you come to it with the mindset that narrows it to one or the other. Then Jerome and Theodore and Augustine um, reemphasized the literal and Christ-centered interpretation of the Old Testament. And what stands out to me is Jerome, because later on he does a Latin translation of the uh, Bible, including the New Testament, and that becomes a source text that stands behind the King James translation. It was a good translation. And then we have Thomas Aquinas, who is a medieval scholastic, who interpreted scripture looking at what was literal and historical and in the same time emphasizing the figurative meanings which takes us into the spiritual application. Then comes the Renaissance after the uh, medieval era and that is what we call the awakening in Europe. It was a transition that took place over a few centuries from medieval to modern ways of thinking. The medieval period is sometimes called the Dark Ages. Dark because modern people in the Renaissance felt that because they had poor understanding of science and mathematics and whatever, that uh, they need to be enlightened. And so we talk about the enlightenment coming in the Renaissance. What the enlightenment describes? It describes the notion that man's mind is the ultimate source of knowledge. And so we go from religious humanism, where man is high point of God's creation, to a secular humanism, where man displaces God and directs his own life. It's a deadly idea that continues on. It really came to the head in Bible commentaries, theology in the 19th century, especially among European theologians, especially the German ones, 
Germans like German fat bread too. So the Enlightenment and the Renaissance emphasize second humanism above religion. Then we have the Reformation, which emphasizes the authority of the scripture above any kind of arbitrary tradition. And in that environment, we have the rise of the Baptist faith. All scripture is inspired by God. Bible is central in the works of God. God's knowledge by faith. I am that I am, he says in Exodus 3.14 and John 8.58. We believe that what God says about himself is true to what is. Empirical evidence. Evidence of discerned through touch, through the senses, sight, sound, touch. Scientific measurement can never prove the existence of God. If you look at the message of the biblical text as a theology, as a philosophy, there is never the basic premise behind anywhere that we're going to stop who God is. It's assumed who God is. Every philosophical system starts off with an assumption, and that limits the conclusion to that system. And that's why philosophies have limitations, although they have uh, gifts to us in some ways. So I'm glad for science truly so called. And then I'm alive today through the promise of God and the wise application of medical technology. And many of you can say the same thing here. How is God known to us? His works are known to us in creation, and his work is known in the scripture, in his word. Psalm 19 is the proof text for this, and you're familiar with that. The Bible is consistent to what it is. The text is internally consistent to temporal reality, what's around us, historical events. Daniel said, the Lord raises up whatsoever he will and put it down to whatsoever he will. What better interpretation of history can you get? Keep that in mind as our own society disintegrates. It is disintegrating faster than some of the ancient ones, which last sometimes close to a thousand years. The Bible is externally consistent uh, to the spiritual reality of the moral state of man. I'm not sure I have that clearly stated there. When, what I intend to say by way of getting past this is that in every case where archaeological evidence corresponds with by the biblical information, nothing in archaeology has disproven the We see archaeology as a science as being used wisely, unless somebody interprets it the wrong way. The Bible reveals God literally, analogically, that is, metaphorically, He's like a rock. He's like some other thing. Jesus is like Mother Hannah. <coughs> the Bible reveals God to God's Son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 1 to 4. Jesus is the express image of God's person. I love that verse. God is not a person because we're persons. We're persons because God is a person. <laughs> Made in his image, memory, thought, creativity, uh, free choice. 
Father, He is God, in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible is a collection of books. We call it a canon, the abiding text that we go to. Uh, a canon is a word that simply means, this is C-A-N-O-N, and it is the thing that goes boom, bam, in Civil War battlefields. But it doesn't have the people's souls sometimes. It means the authoritative set of books that are thematically unified around the story of redemption. And clearer to us and to the ancients as century by century it became clearer to Christ as well. The Bible reveals God to bring men to salvation and the Bible uh, is the source of instruction for the church. There are two words that you hear again somewhere in these meetings, and that is the word inspired, which literally means spirit breathed. So we believe the word is breathed by the spirit into the human affairs. We are inspired. We uh, get enthused about presenting a topic or getting some work done. We use it simply that way, but originally means spirit free. And another word is enthused, which implies from the Greek also entails God in us. So when we relate to the Word of God as interpreters, preachers of it, Hopefully, you are inspired and enthused that the Spirit breathed into you and that you are God-possessed in your preaching and teaching. The Bible comes to us, the revelation comes to us, that our joy would be closed. The whole relationship of man to God has been is a sordid, hopeless affair. The relationship of God to man is an amazing work of love. Grace. We want to send inspiration to scriptures. Holy men of God were moved by the Spirit to produce a witness that Peter talks about. We have a more short word of prophecy. That word was testimony. This is my beloved son, which he and his companions heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. Beautiful story. Is everyone inspired by the word? No. Some people are greatly offended that God can be mine and correct them. They will curse the word and blaspheme it for people. And you look through the Old Testament and you think about how the word came to people, how God's word was revealed, you will hear. You will read words like go, run, speak, say, show, write, tell. How does revelation come to people? By the will of God. By the communal action of the body of believers. So I am being inspired by you this evening. Friend, you've been praying at Princeton, but we believe that the inspired scriptures are the word of life to show the judgment and mercies of God, to bring life and truth to us in Jesus Christ. We believe that the inspired scriptures are attested to by the Holy Spirit. 
kind of interject as a little hobby here. It's very, if someone starts pointing what the Spirit is telling them to do, you have a test to know whether the Spirit is speaking, and that's the written word of God, and that's the example of Christ. And there's a disconnect there. Uh, probably, well, I know it is, it's your understanding of the Spirit, or misunderstanding of the Spirit, and the only way to uh, refocus and direct it properly is is in the Word. Where the Word really has to take us apart, put us back together, and as you we can go forward in life. As we go into, uh, or as you, as we, and as you beyond the, these messages and instructions, think about the uh, structure of the Word. Uh, one of the questions will come up as how many of the sources that you find say to produce a text to translate from or a text to preach from? Do you really want to preach from the message or do you want to preach from uh, the new KJV or do you want to preach from the, uh, the New English Bible, not that the English Standard Bible? Uh, you want to be careful where you're going there. In scholarly research, primary sources are diaries, uh, autographs, things written, one's own handwriting, or in our time, type with a signature on it. We know what autograph books, so autographs are documents that are written by hand in the person's handwriting. By the way, there are no autographs of any of the sources books that we have, simply because they've been worn out and misguided. And what we have is copies coming down the years. Now, if you work in a carpenter shop, some of you have, and you have a pattern, and you measure it carefully, and you write a pattern on it, and you lay it down the next piece and cut it off, and you can for every cut-off piece, you're going to have a standardized set of fence palings, or whatever you're making, okay? But if you are thoughtless and you use the pattern and then take cut off and use it as a pattern and take the cut off and use it as a pattern, you will wind up with some strange pieces that don't fit. See, it reminds me of that job game, what is it called, where whispering down the lane where you started the class and goes around and you compare the first statement with the last one and uh, strange things happen. But secondary sources are repeating but someone has learned from a primary source, and both sources are good. The question comes is, when are the secondary sources credible? And we come to the issue of heresy. When is something heretical? What is a heresy? Well, heresy is cultish. It is selectively cultish in the sense that people have a mindset that they want to accept and apply. It's very divisive. In fact, some techniques, some definitions, source of the word heresy simply say something that causes division. And then I have a related word, accomplish, something that's a private interpretation. That reminds you of verse? No scripture is a private interpretation. Keep that in mind. You get this right idea, that's a good idea. Better check whether somebody else had that idea before or not. And not to get a credit to it, came to you originally. The bright ideas sometimes will get us in deep trouble financially, in a practical sense. 
surprised at the stuff I tried to build and, and have all the cut and I have to do it over and over to get it right. But we don't do that with the word. We can't look people do, but we really should. We talk about orthodoxy and and uh, interpretation. The word orthodox simply means straight, true, and upright. But if you go to an orthodontist, you're making your teeth. You mentioned teeth, straight and upright. An orthodox interpretation influences people in worship in the Old Testament in two very good examples as for the ten Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8 will be used in a later copy, so I won't go farther. Think of the times in Psalms where uprightness is used to describe righteousness. A person that's upright in heart can worship God and be blessed. If you're not upright in heart, you've got to repent to be upright to be accepted. The emphasis so far has been perhaps on the Old Testament. Scripture in the New Testament refers to what is written, especially as in the Old Testament. In our time, the word scripture generally includes the New Testament writings, and so you can talk about the scripture and mean both if we will understand. I mean, think about the Old Testament, you know how many books there are, and we know the five parts that we divide the text into history, the law, history, poetry, major prophets, minor prophets, have that right to make so. And the question that has interest to us is how is the canon, or has been the Old Testament canon, scripture established? And these questions are very important. The first one is how do Christ and his apostles use the Old Testament text? You can be pretty sure of that being said. Now, why would we need to make an adjustment on something that's been going on for, I mean, the churches have used? New Testament canon or what? I'm talking about the Old Testament. But even the Old Testament canon is not 100% established until after the time of Christ by 100 AD. That's a general date, but that's surprising. If we go to the Jewish Bible, which is the Old Testament, the New Testament is an image, it was divided into three parts the Torah, which was the law, the prophets, now here's the amazing thing. The prophets in the Jewish Old Testament included the history and what we call the prophets. And the twelve minor prophets are under one heading called the Book of the Twelve within the prophets. The third part was the writings, which includes poetry and first uh, and second chronicles and the Book of Daniel. Or whatever it's worth, you can find out standard inside the pain. So evidence about the development of the canon, the talk about the Old Testament, uh, rests upon, from our point of view, looking back, we need to ask the question, do we really have the real Old Testament in our hands? I assure you that we do, because we know from the New Testament what Christ and his apostles prophet quoted from, uh, we know some information from the non-canonical books of the Old Testament, Europe, or the New Testament, or the Apocrypha. We've heard about the Apocrypha, a little more about that. And we have the histories of Josephus 
antiquities of the Jews and the history of the Jews. And he wrote or lived AD 37 through 100, and he escaped the destruction of Jerusalem uh, and defected to the uh, Roman cause, you know, this Jewish faith, essentially. I'm suspect in part of some of the things that you see the studies very worthwhile study. Just don't get hung up on him as the first primary source for authenticating things that you read in the Bible. The other thing that is evidence to what within the canon is archaeological resources, sources, I should say, remnants of old manuscripts manuscripts, especially one used by the Essenes, taking the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then we have a fifth one, maybe more, Eusebius was another writer who uh, gives us some information about how the ancients looked at the books that make up the Old Testament. We can also look at what the early church fathers quoted and used, which would also fall back the Jewish Old Testament canon settled out uh, either between 140 and 40 years BC. 40 years BC. 40 BC was what the Jewish Caesar was ruling, and he's followed by Augustus at the time of Christ. There's some discrepancy there in the books that I was studying. Um, may not have been settled completely until the second century common era, which is A.D. And if you're going to do Bible studies, you've got to deal with D.C. before Christ, A.D., which is after Christ. I won't try to say the Latin because I threw a blank on it. And a common era, C.E., related to uh, a more universal style. You seem to be aware how to use those dates if you look at history. I believe that the form as well as the content of the Old Testament is inspired. And I want to say it here, if I, missed, I think I missed it somewhere else. When we look at literature, the Bible, the work of art, like a painting, a piece of music, a hymn, except the music, you cannot separate form and content. The form helps carry the message. You can't separate that. That's a basic, basic principle. Now, your existentialists in the 20th century uh, are separated. It's a deadly modern philosophy that makes living in the moment the only thing that matters. That sounds right, doesn't it? That's the I don't go there. Kind of quagmire, The law and the prophets, the law and the books of the law were written, copied out by scribes, lauded by poets, memorized by kings, upheld by prophets, read in the congregation, kept in the sanctuary. And I remember this king, and uh, besides the temple, he cleaned up and he found the law, and he was. Now, devastated, I think, might be a correct word. And there's two reasons. One is his conscience was touched and it had been forgotten. Furthermore, one of the commissions upon a king was, what? Well, he was supposed to memorize the law. 
supposed to know inside and out is forgotten. Family friends, friends to our family, where the parents require the children to copy the Bible by hand, they start when they can write. They get rewarded with this or whatever they want to do or sound like it's done. It's interesting. I don't know if my children can handle it. I don't know if I can handle it. But we need to know the word. Just reading it and memorizing it doesn't make it a part of us unless we believe it and live it. And not separate faith and obedience. That goes along with biblical interpretation, preaching, teaching. In the New Testament, we face the same issues. We have a number of books. You know how the church uses the New Testament. I don't think we should change our uses of it at all. The New Testament becomes a living entity in the person of Christ. Luke 22, 15 to 20 would be a source if you want to read it. Here's the question that uh, we don't want to lose by people who want to emphasize the new over the old. Here's the sense in which the new fulfills the old. In fact, it's caught in a little two-line point come down from the Latin into the English, rhymed in English, it says like this, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. Notice how the rhyme and the rhythm will help you remember that, and you have a principle for the New Testaments. Biblical covenants are testimonies of the legal force between God and man. So we have a covenant of promise made to Abraham. We have a covenant of law which came by Moses. We have a covenant of came by Jesus Christ. All these former covenants are fulfilled in God's time, what I would call unfolding eschatology. Former covenants are fulfilled in Christ. If you are a student of the book of Romans, Brother Ray probably knows this better than I do, we have the covenant of conscience reviewed in the first two chapters, where conscience speaks before what the word does. The man in the street that doesn't know the Bible doesn't have black book. They start talking and he's got troubles. He doesn't have answers. And you can pick up on that disease. This ease, which might be a disease of sin. And you have a new book to show up where they have the covenant of law discussed in Romans 3 to 7, Grace, Romans 8 to 11. Somewhere there about Romans 4, we have a review of Abraham. What about before Abraham? How did God relate to people? The first part of the book of Genesis. Our reform theologians would say he related to them like the uh, works. They don't know anything much more about that, exactly what they mean by that. I'm sure he related to them through the conscience. We have examples of Noah comes to mind. We have the promise of the grace to get down the years being rainbow, which we can still see today. How were the writings selected to make up the end of the New Testament? <coughs> we know the major sections. I can't give you a technical answer to that, but I'm going to give you one that I think is fundamentally correct. Established by the body of believers who universally share it. Do the church do that? 
I lost something back in the line. The Apocrypha was never a part of the New Testament books that the Jews used. It was just a literary resource of history and whatever. We find evidence about the development of canon and established texts from catalog references and the texts that were used by the original. I'm thinking about the New Testament now, which is almost repeat of what I did with the Old Testament. We look at the remnants of old manuscripts, and we see the early dialogue and debate about the credibility and the veracity of the various books. For instance, in the New Testament canon, any book that had an author's name to it was more easily accepted than one that did not. So the book of Hebrews uh, was a little bit late being accepted into the canon. Everybody that reads it closely believes it should be there. I mean, if we were the committee and were to decide the mind whether it belong there, we would not have to get it. I think we could decide pretty, pretty well, but yet it belongs there. That was a high mind that said, we have good minds, good spirits here, so. <laughs> New Testament canon, it finally resolved about the year 339. excuse me, 367, by the Bishop of Alexandria. And then it was canonized by church councils. Don't think Roman Catholic here, just think early church. You know, that in about 393, 397 AD. And just a word about Alexandria. You know where Alexandria was located? On the coast of Asia, west of the Mount, the Nile, St. Dr. Alexander contained uh, the most important literary resources the world ever had in hand, but libraries destroyed with fire. The Alexandrian text will agree will come to bear on translation backgrounds that will discuss probably in a later topic. I'm going to stop here, even though I'm not finished this evening. I'll just uh, stick it in tomorrow. We're going to talk about uh, the Apocrypha a bit. I think that's the description. Here's a question I want to leave with this evening, though. Two of them, in fact. Three of them, in fact. I have to bet it out. I have two questions that I'm cheating. Third one on me. Because I don't think far enough ahead. What is the relationship of the New Testament to the Christian faith? Easy answer. It's the rule of faith. Okay. It's the relationship of the Old Testament to the Christian faith. We search that and see the continuity. The continuity that exists, the tremendous testimony to God's perfect planning. When does the New Testament end? Brother David. Sorry. Brother what? When does the New Testament end? We're talking about the closed canon here. The New Testament ends when, when the church is finally put together with Christ. Yeah. We're still part of the New Testament. Isn't that one? That's, that's tremendous. In the formal layout of the scripture, 
the camera is closed and we're not supposed to add or detract from it. I ask the question to keep you focused, myself focused on the fact that we are part of that story in transmitting it, part of the story, continuing formation, inspiration, enthusiasm for the work down the years. I got to ask you and thanks for coming. Thanks for your Yes. Thank you for the Gerald. And um, with that, we will also close this service and give you the opportunity to answer some of the questions, discuss them among yourselves. Uh, he gave us more than three. I kept track. There was a few at the beginning as well. So God bless you as you discuss them and consider them yourself or with those around you. Invite you back tomorrow. Um, label as the early morning session. It's really not that early. It's only 8 o'clock in the morning. So invite you back for a time of singing and uh, further consideration of this topic. Uh, Brother